be able to focus and say, okay, right now is the best chance I'm going to get to change my life and actually take it. Because I really believe that that's if if most people could just be in the moment. And- Thank you for tuning into the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. I'm your host, Isaac, bringing you an authentic perspective into the inner workings of the world. Today's message is one you won't want to miss. So let's get straight into today's episode. And welcome, everyone, to today's episode on the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. Thank you all for tuning in. I am excited because today is another of our very, very great interview series where we're bringing on different perspectives, different voices to really talk about self-improvement, not in the conventional way, but in a way that allows us to express how we individually come to become our best selves, how the journey is different, yet the parallels that we find across different people that go for the stars, that shoot for the better life. Today is a guest that I want to bring on because they embody one aspect of success that, to be honest, I don't see very often in the world. And if there is it, it's not promoted as much. And that's this emotional success. It's the ability to understand how we feel and control it, but not ignore it. It's this thin line of living a true, authentic life of real emotional balance and stability. And that carries into the other parallels of life and the way we work and the way we love and all these attributes, it's very, very important. And so today's guest, I really want you to just think of how your life could be better if you were to take away some of the things that he says and that this conversation transpires, what develops in your mind? What are some of the philosophical ideas that you can now implement in your life to make your life better, to become the hero of your own story? So without further ado, let me welcome today's guest, Louis Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Isaac. That was beautiful. Maybe one day I can be as, as good a speaker as you are. That's that's amazing. <laughs> well, Louie, I think the best way to get started today is just to tell the people a bit about your backstory and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. So I'm originally from the DRC, that's a, the Congo in Africa. I um, came to America when I was about 13 years old. I grew up pretty pretty well off. My my dad was a director of a bank out there. Grew up pretty well off, like I said. And um, when I was about 13 years old, just instability in the country. My parents decided to, both my mom and dad are together, decided to move us to America. Came here, grew up uh, for the last maybe 12 years, I would say. I've been in America, 16 years. I was, I'm 31 now, so I, I you do the math. But I've been here since, did middle school, high school, some college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do for college, but eventually I found IT uh, and I worked in IT for maybe seven, eight years. And over the last couple of years, I've been an entrepreneur. So what I do my day to day is I build apps, software for, you know, just people who are trying to, you know, make it with their, their own app idea or maybe somebody that's, a, that's got a company, established company. I make software for them. In the meantime, what I've done in my personal life is... Um, of course, I've I've made friends in my time in America, but I've also my I guess my biggest pride and joy right now is I've been married for the last couple of years now. I've been with my wife for about eight years. Our anniversary is coming up next week, I believe. Um, we have two children now. Very very excited about that. Throughout the process of me becoming the person I am today, it's it's it hasn't always been very easy. I didn't always understand emotional intelligence. I didn't understand. Um, how that affected me just with friendships, but also with romantic relationships and work. But over the last six, five or six years, I've really focused on understanding the importance of emotions and how they can really enable a better life for yourself and 
And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Over the last year, I've been writing a book um, called The Dynamic Man, which is a concept I've, um, I've I've kind of developed over the last few years. But I'm sure we can dive deeper into that also. Yeah, you know, I think a great starting place for my eyes is nowadays we see a lot of media being pushed, right? Narratives that are pushed. And, you know, if you look 100 years ago, the biggest companies in the world Four out of five of them all revolved around oil. But now the biggest companies are at, revolve around a new currency, and that's attention. And so now every creator, every business, they're fighting for their slice of attention. And so where I want to start today is how what's best for us and what helps us become our most authentic selves usually isn't what's portrayed or given to us, or it's hidden. You know, for you to be in the place that you are now, for you to have, like you mentioned, the emotional intelligence that you have now, there's a lot of tests and trials and tribulations. And that's not a one-day process or a week process. That can take months and years of time. And what's beautiful, but also not really captured about that for many people, is how vulnerable that makes you. And that's why I believe it to be one of the most difficult things for a man to do is develop emotional attention, intelligence, because that creates the opening for vulnerability. And the reality is, is that most men fear vulnerability for justifiable reasons, but it's the yeah. truth. Yeah. And so then it becomes the responsibility of people like you and people that me, like me that understand the reality that emotional intelligence is very hard to come by, especially for men. Yeah. And it's like, again, with the content that you produce, you again, you develop apps. But of course, um, to everyone listening, Louis also produces relationship content on his Instagram. And he pushes out these great nuggets, which isn't your conventional self-improvement like go do this, go do that because everybody else is saying that. But it's the messages of like, here's how I understood this in my relationship. And what I love about the way that you send your message to is it's always about you. It's what's worked for you in your story. And you always kind of keep it so grounded because it's always what you've learned. And that makes it very easy, one, to digest the information, but two, understand how it's like one application that isn't one size fits all. And so... Do you think that's something that's more naturally occurring to just share your story rather than tell people what to do? Or do you think that you've just found that that actually helps people more? What's kind of been your approach to all of that? I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, I thank you very much. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you're able to pick up on these things because I'm not sure if it's obvious when I do it. Uh, so you've, you've touched on a couple of points. So first things first, I felt really, I feel really uncomfortable with just the idea of telling people what to do. Oh, you should do this, you should do that because it's never one size fits all. Like it's just not true. And the 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 problem with the internet. I mean, I love the internet, social media. Just the thing is, when I have thirty seconds to relay a message, if I'm telling, if I'm barking orders at folks, they might think I'm saying this is the only way something can be done. As opposed to like you're you're saying, I felt like if I'm relating it to my personal experience, I'm hoping that people can kind of gather that, hey, this is not a one size fits all. It worked for him. However, the underlying concepts might be similar, right? So, and it's and it's kind of hard really for, in my comments, I go back and forth with people because a lot of folks are not able to pick up on all the different things you can because you're a very smart person. No offense to those other folks. Um, but yeah, so I find it a lot easier to make it into a story, right? I've, uh, I tried, I worked with Malachi, who you know, um, in the standard, when we first did our, our content together, we tried different styles and we noticed, you know, we used the data from from uh, from the first couple of weeks. We, we've noticed a formula of things that worked pretty well. 
and um, storytelling relating to yourself, which is comfortable for me because, like you said, I don't want to uh, tell people what to do. Um, that works well for the Internet, but also hopefully it translates well for just folks to understand these concepts. But, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. I think another thing that I also find very interesting about not only like obviously your content, but like your overall like delivery and both in person and, and the content that you do is I really love how, and I know this has been a process for you. Absolutely. How you definitely seem someone that's a little more agreeable, right? Like you're, you're more conflict averse, but I see that you also have that, that you always have those ties to your values. So while the approach is soft in nature, I know that there's like a lot of like, ties to something that's strong and unwavering, which I, I find very interesting because typically the creators in these spaces are the opposite. They tend to start more disagreeable and maybe they become more open to telling the stories. And, and so I think in that way, it's not, it becomes bigger than just you. Like you just mentioned, it's about like everyone finding their own edge, but I think it's a true testament to like anybody that wants to send a message and share their story can and the ability to facilitate unique conversational um, techniques and just sharing things in a particular way allows you to develop your own unique selling proposition, right? It develops a value prop in of itself because it's so real. And I also think that for people that understand content as a long-term game and they're playing the game of branding, not just marketing, you get into this world where the more you can just love how you record content, as well as like the messaging that you're actually sending being the messaging that you want in the world, it becomes a lot more fulfilling. And I think that's why so many people quit so early on because one, they don't see the results they want, but two, they're not sending the right kind of message. And, and you kind of look at the long-term plan. You're like, again, like you have a family. Do you really want your family growing up in a world where you're just lying about the kind of messaging that you don't even believe in? Or do you want them to see like years and years of someone who just expressed what they truly believed and learned and how it shaped you into who you are today. So I think it's, it's a lot of interesting things that I, I think you've done very well that are not very common in the space because not many people are willing to put themselves out in those kind of situations. Yeah. And thank you. And I just, you're right. I just, what I want to ask you is how do you, how, how are you able to pick up on these things? Cause those are my actual thoughts. Never had this conversation before, but those are my thoughts. Like I want my, my family, my kids to look at this, be able to like, okay, even if I'm not around for whatever reason, this is who dad is, right? He's not putting up a front. This is who he is at home. This is who's on the internet. They're babies now, but like, if I was just trying to grab money, I could save just some garbage. And then I'm sure people would, you know, gravitate to that. My question is, how are you able to pick up on these things if, without even us having this conversation? Well, that's like a different set of skill, right? How do you, how do you come up with that? That's a great question. Um, when I started producing content, right, when I started the podcast um, almost three years ago, right, we're getting to that point, you know, it was just about recording and journaling a message and, and just sending something that might help the person that was struggling with my situation. But I realized that a lot of the people that are at the same age as me are still going through this on finding who I am. And that often carries into to early mid-20s for most people. And, and so I realized that like while I hope they can take from my message and learn, they're not the kind of audience that I really like feel connected to. There's this disparity that I felt. And so I asked myself, if I want to produce content for the guy who's 29, 30, and, and has already found some success, 
but still feels like they're missing an important piece of the puzzle. Yet I don't have that age, nor do I have the length of time of experience that they do. How am I going to, one, be able to relate to them and to be able to help them? And I realized that what I needed to do was craft an edge and what I call a great skill of intuition. I had to be able to thin slice people and read them and, and be able to identify what they are based on everything that they do, the way they talk, the way they carry themselves, even the hesitations before they speak. And so these kinds of things I learned through research articles and scientific studies. I've learned through authors like Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote Outliers or Blink and just these kinds of books that then slice. Psycho-Cybernetics is another book. Um, and so it's these things that I've practiced, right? And then I'll, I'll even guess it too. Like I'll try to, for example, have conversation with friends and I'll try to guess what they're going to say in my head. And I try to like identify how do they do that? Why are they doing that? I try to gleam, you know, body language and what's the tonation of the voice. And then I use this in form a mental picture of what they're saying, but not actually saying, because most of our com communication is nonverbal. And so understanding this, I really try to utilize that because then instead of you having a conversation with me who has less experience and is younger, me and you can have a conversation and we can operate on the same frequency because I understand you and because I'm willing to rise to that level. And oftentimes it's really funny because when I do interviews and you and I know each other, but when I do interviews, a lot of times I don't know the person beforehand. Like we have our call, we make sure we go over the details. I kind of get to know a bit more about them and, and the team sets all that up, but it's a 15 minute call. And then it's the interview um, a couple days or weeks after they never know my age whenever we start. And if they ask, I'll tell them no problem. But every time they've asked, it's, it's never been at the start and it always shocks them. But to me, it creates this powerful paradigm shift where it's like when you stop referencing the conversational ability with the age, and again, most of the time they're right. But in this case, it creates this different kind of ambiance, which allows for a different kind of conversation. And so I've realized that if I want to produce the impact that I want to produce, I have to be very, very good and articulate at the skill of reading other people. So that's really my answer for that. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. And it's just a follow-up question, just out of curiosity, because I've had this experience when I was nineteen, I was eighteen, nineteen, working in IT. But do you feel like your age, people finding out your age before they talk to you, do you feel like it's a disadvantage sometimes? Do you feel like they judge you, or or do you feel like it's just like the same typically? It's different in how they treat me. I used to view it as a disadvantage for sure, but I got to the point where it was kind of like the only time I didn't really want it to happen was if I was doing a podcast interview because that would influence the flow of the conversation because that's the first impression that kind of like, again, when you only have the hour, hour 15 to really have a great conversation, it already sets the wrong kind of paradigm shift that I don't want. But outside of that, I really got to this point where I'm like, if they believe my abilities are less because of my age, well, the only person that it really matters is me. So if I if there's someone that's kind of like competition based, well, then I'll just come through the side and they won't even see because they have a blind spot now. So that's an opening for me. Yeah. And if there's someone that becomes a friend, you know, they'll eventually learn how little that age has impacted me. Right. And it's like, even though I'm, you know, I'm 20, it doesn't matter 
because I can do these other things. Or it's like, even though I'm this age, I can appreciate these other things that they had no idea. So to me, it doesn't matter at all anymore. Um, I definitely understand that there's a perception shift that people have when they hear it. But I know that you give them any length of time with me, that perception changes because it's not conventional and they'll never believe it if they know me well enough. And if there's someone that I don't believe we should get to know each other well enough that way, like, you know, if there's someone that I don't think should be close to me, then they continue believing that, you know, and, and if they learn different, they learn different. But again, it's not, it's not in our nature to change others. They have to change themselves. Um, but for sure, it was something for, for a while that I always like as a disadvantage because it was always like, I know I don't act the way that I, the age that I am. And it was kind of like, you know, it was frustrating. Um, but I definitely learned over time how, how that really shifted and how it became more of an asset than a liability. For sure. Yeah, man. And, and just, I'm, I'm a very curious person. And that's, I wish I knew you when I was 20, you know, the people, the people I hung around with, I've always, I've always liked maturity and just like depth. There wasn't always that going on. Um, how do you, how do you, it's, it's, to me, it's amazing, you know, so not, not to downplay. I mean, I really, I look up to that. So I look up to you for, for being where you are with the limited time that you've had, that's that's amazing, right? So I want to just ask you, how did you get here? How, as as a person, how were you able to grow so fast? That is, that's something that I'm always trying to learn, and maybe I also can, you know, maybe teach to my to my kids when they when they grow up. How did you do it? I think the first step is belief. You have to believe that something different is possible for that to become the new reality. I think one of the great poets, Pemda, said it best. He said, become who you are by knowing who you are. Mm. And it's a very vague and kind of like, well, like it's not saying much. But when I interpret what, that, what the poet said, I really hear you believe in craft the person that you're going to be. Mm. You visualize it. Mm. And then once you visualize it and actually see a conceptualized version of what your thoughts are, now you actually have an aim because mm -hmm. I feel like visualization, uh, visualization is creating the target. If you were an archery, for example, mm -hmm. and of course you can't shoot a target that isn't there. So before you understand the wind and the weather and the bow and the draw strength and the arrow that you want to use, you got to have the target. And, and so, I mean, my journey goes back just to simplify it to, uh, to COVID, you know, I think prior to COVID, like, intellectually yeah i was smart and stuff like that like i was never like within the average like i always did pretty well for myself um in terms of academics but like in terms of everything else like i really wasn't putting effort in any extracurriculars like i wasn't doing much with my life i was like me looking back i was mediocre now statistically i wasn't but the way i looked at myself i was definitely just a mediocre guy that was just trying to you know do the bare minimum to like have his free time when COVID hit that like it just amplified that. So it got worse for like two, three weeks. And then I just remember sitting in front of the mirror one day or like not sitting, I was staying in front of the mirror and it was like, I, it was just this one morning and it was like, well, not even a morning. I woke up and it was like 12 or one in the afternoon. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and I was, it was like the first time I was truly disgusted with myself. Yeah. Like I never looked at myself as overweight as a kid. I never looked at myself as someone that was lazy or this or that. And I played sports and everything, but it was just this one time and it was, I was just done. I was like, I'm sick of this. Mm. And then I got to thinking, I'm like, if I'm sick of this and I continue doing this, I'm going to feel like this for the rest of my life. And I was like, what 
if I changed all of that? What if I just wasn't this person that didn't feel great about themselves? What if I just started now? I'm like, I'm in lockdown. I can't leave my house. I can't see my friends. I can't do anything other than be alone with myself right now. And I was like, what if this is the best chance I'll ever have to change everything? Because when I come out of this, I'll just be a completely different person. And, and that's and it was strong enough that it propelled me for the first, you know, it propelled me for the start. Uh, I remember the first book that I seriously listened in that time was uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, which I've quoted is, is probably the best book that I could have read at that time. Yeah. And, I was, <laughs> and I'm listening to this book, man. And I went from, you know, 12 o'clock um, go, waking up to two in the morning, going to sleep to 730 at night, going to bed and waking up at 430, going for a run, exercising at home with like two sets of weights. And I did this for like three months and I lost like 30 pounds. Yeah. And it was like the first time I was like, yes, like this is good. Like I feel good about myself. You know, I got into a job where I was learning a lot. I was managing at this point. And then, you know, and so I was learning a lot in that time and I kind of, it never satisfied my hunger since then. And so the compounding just began to snowball. And, and like yourself, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in a two parent household, you know, where my parents definitely were the best parents I could have asked for. And what's crazy is they weren't the catalyst for me becoming who I was, who I am today. But as I developed every lesson, every teaching, every moment that they had taught me over the years was kind of like filling the potholes in the road yeah. of my journey before I got to them. Yeah. And, and you don't realize it until you hit the pothole that it's not the yeah. same kind of grounding. And so that was a very interesting concept that I learned too. You know, I, I remember things that my father used to say to me, like, I remember one time after soccer, I was furious. And I was like nine years old. I was furious at him. Um, because he kept telling me like to improve this and do this better. And he said, I would rather you hate me now and love me later than love me now and hate me later. Because my first job to you is to be your father before I'm your friend. And of course, as a nine-year-old, I'm not going to understand that. But even the saying stuck in my head. And, you know, as you grow, it, it creates these seeds. So I think parenthood, you know, there's a lot of things that you can argue about what's right and what's wrong and what you should put your kids in and not put your kids in, but definitely planting seeds for the future allows the kid to grow it in their own ways, but the lesson remains nonetheless. Secondly, I also think that when you do something that early and you provide these order and routines and that stability, it allows for creativity to flow because everything else is taken care of, you know, because it creates this controlled environment, like a science experiment yeah. where you can test variables, but you don't have to worry about every variable switching when yeah, yeah. things are going on, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so there's all these things that are going on. So, to, I mean, to answer your question, like, I really think it's just a compounding of, I just saw that I was here and my potential was here. Like it was like, it was magnanimous, the difference that there was. And I told myself that never again would I settle for anything more than what I could be. And, and that's been the propelment, you know, and everything that I've done has been the, the attribution of the work that I've put in, the knowledge that I've acquired, the people that have helped me along the way and the foundation that my parents have laid. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. I agree. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's, yeah, to me, it sounds like, of course, you had that home base. It was, it's not always obvious the the seeds your parents are planting, they, but they're, you know, they've been alive a long time. They've, they've learned a lot of things. You, you think they're, you love them at first and then you're like, you know, they're not so great. 
And then eventually you're like, whoa, man, these people are really telling me some really true things about life. And then, of course, you, you, you're, always, you're already a smart kid, smart guy. And then COVID, like, like you, you're, you're probably already very self-aware. But then COVID gives you a level of self-awareness that's just like, man, like I remember going through a lot of stuff during that time period also, just like just sitting with myself. So, but I think you're right, man. I think w the most amazing thing I heard from this is your ability to be able to focus and say, okay, right now is the best chance I'm going to get to change my life and actually take it. Because I really believe that that's, if, if most people could just be in the moment and, and, and recognize an opportunity, because you looked at COVID as an opportunity. Most people looked at COVID as like, just like the worst thing that could happen in the world. And, and they probably, a lot of people, unfortunately, you know, didn't make it through COVID because mentally they, they did not survive it. But your outlook and your mindset about COVID propelled you. And that's, that's a testament to, to, like your, to who you are, man. That's kudos to you. Do you think that someone, given the right resources, has the same opportunity as a person with the same resources? Or how much do you think that just the environment or in what ways do you think the environment shifts? How people with the same resources can, can again, grow those resources or take advantage of those resources? Yeah. Could you elaborate a little more? Give me like an example. Yeah. So take someone that has the same socioeconomic status. Mm. They live in the same country mm. and maybe they're a part of the same city. We even go that specific. But one of them grew up in an environment, for example, maybe they say that they played sports or they're always mm. on a team and they had a two-parent household. And the other one was always in arts or music and they grew up in a single-parent household. And again, they go, they have the same financial backing and they're in the same city with the same, in the same country. You know, what, like, where do you think the past divert when it comes to just the utilization of resources in different environments? Yeah, man. I, you know, I think like you, you touched on something very great. And I feel like the stability that you get from like, if having two parents household and things are already taken care of, you don't have to worry about so much. I feel like you're, if you have to worry about surviving a lot, like survival, where is my, where are my parents going to get food? Where am I going to get, if you're already worrying about just these things that should be already taken care of by your parents, I feel like you don't, you, you have less room for creativity, like you said, to begin with. But then let's say you have two people who are in the same socioeconomic status, you know, just place or level. I still think that you're, the traits that you're born, you're born with, like, I believe that people are like, I, you know, like for instance, I know people don't think this is true. I don't, it, it to me, it's, I, I know this is true. Like people are born with certain personality traits. They're very basic and then they can be molded into something else around the right environment, but you're born with them. Because if you think about it, I say, if you have a kid like me, I'm a black man. If I have a kid with another black person, black woman, uh, the kid will be black. If I have a kid with a white woman, the kid will be biracial. And that's because your genetics are literally passed down. Who I am is passed down to that kid. Okay. It's, it's the same thing. The traits that you have as a, the traits that people have are literally traits that, are, that have come down from different generations. So I think it's a, it's a combination of, hey, 
we're at the same level as far as economics, finance, so on and so forth. But who am I as a person? I think it's like if that single mother, a single parent is able to identify that na- the, the kid's nature and treat it well and nourish it. And I think things, good things will happen. I have cousins that have grown up in the same family, like same parents. And they just, one of them has just always been more aggressive and just things didn't pan out for them because they, their parents didn't recognize that to be like something that could be negative and they just kept feeding it into to the point where they just didn't care about anybody anymore. It almost became sociopaths where there's other kids in the same household, same, more meek, and they kind of just fed that and the, the kid turned out okay. So I think it's more of a, if, of course, your, your status, sure, it plays a huge role, but who you are naturally how you're, you're, how you're, the people who are around you when, when you're growing up are molding you into, hey, maybe let, let, okay, we see that Isaac is, is a bit quieter than he should be. Let, let's get him to talk more, right? And then just it, that also impacts you so much because by the time you become an adult, you're, or a teenager, all that stuff is built into your confidence, your sense of self, your personality. Like you'd have to reinvent yourself as a teenager or young adults for you to have a different life. Because there's people, the, the the things that you're doing right now, I know, I know there's someone that that can that would tell me it's impossible. What's I, what Isaac has done is impossible. Losing thirty pounds in in three months is literally impossible for me. Even though they have the same exact situations, right? So it's just because of where their mind has been set based on how they've grown up and who they are naturally, but then everything else is what I believe. I think one of the biggest uh, misinterpretations when it comes to what you're talking about is the fact that people believe that everything can change, but because something can change doesn't mean that it should change. Mm. You know, if someone's an introvert, that doesn't mean they should become an extrovert or vice versa because every natural skill has its natural advantages and disadvantages absolutely and you can train yourself to improve your natural skill or personality and then train yourself to sum up the shortcomings and i'll give you very clear examples of this i have always been extroverted Mm. always always been social Mm. but now you won't find me in a room running my mouth as soon as i get into the room first i'm i'm quiet I study the situation in the room. I see the people I want to talk to. I see what kind of room I'm in. I have this patience that I develop because I know that I don't want to jump into a situation without understanding the situation. Someone else is talking. I don't have no need to talk over them or to establish my point above theirs. Let them talk. If someone else is leading, let them lead. You know, unless it's, unless it's my thing, which is different, you know, I have no problem stepping aside because there's things that I realize that were creating problems because of my extroversion, which is natural. But at the flip side too, like if I have something that I need to say or if I need to stand up for my values or my point and protect somebody, in no way would be an introvert helping me there. You know, like there's no reason to be quiet there. Like there's a, there's a need for me to be who I am. Yes. And so it's not about, sh- it's not about changing who you are. Mm-mm. It's about making yourself better. And, and so you have to get rid of an ego too and understand like how do I improve as a person? So that that's extroversion. You know, I take this. I take this assessment every year. I take it in, in, in winter. It's called the IPIP 300. It's a huge personality test. It's 300 questions. And it, it basically focuses on the big five personality traits. So extroversion, neuroticism, 
agreeableness, openness to experience, and I'm missing the last one, conscientiousness. My extroversion for the past three years has declined by four percentiles every year. So I went from 96 to 92 to 88. And I think right now I'm an 88 or 87. I haven't taken the test. It comes up in January. So we'll see. Agreeableness, I think, has also dropped every year. Um, Not by, I think by slower percentages, but I'm probably like 40. It was like 50, 43, 41, 40. My openness, which is interesting, in some cases it rose because it has like subcategories within it. So, for example, extroversion has like excitement sinking. It has, you know, just leadership. It has outspoken. Like it's just different attributes that are on different scales. Um, and, and so it's these kinds of things. And I'm always curious because I'm curious how they track. But again, because a personality assessment says one thing, there's different interpretations of that. So, for example, I'll give you an example that that's very funny because most people kind of like they're they're shocked when I say this. Agreeableness factors in sympathy. Now, my sympathy is the second lowest percentile out of all test takers. Mm. And so when you look at that, it sounds kind of crazy because you're like, man, this, care- this guy doesn't care about anybody. <laughs> but the reality is, is that for me, sympathy, the way I've always looked at it, you know, ever since being the way that I am now, is I don't want to pity someone because that acknowledges that their situation is more than just a temporary thing or that they can't change their situation. I have more of an empathetic approach that like, I get that things are going wrong and I get that your process takes time, but I'm more optimistic that anybody can change their life because I've seen people in horrific situations change theirs. So why am I going to pity you when I know that if you have the right resources and you find the power within, you can change your life. And now when I say this, right, I've understood that my low sympathy isn't all, it's not just a weakness, but it can be a strength. And that, and that's kind of the point that people miss. Because as soon as I say that, someone's like, oh, wow, you don't care about anybody. That's a huge weakness. But I'm like, yeah, there's a weakness to it. Don't get me wrong, you know, but there's a huge upside. But it's kind of like you have to be willing to go against the current and figure out how you can turn weaknesses into strengths and not let your strengths kind of just stray away from understanding there's also weaknesses that have to be covered. Yeah, man. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody say this, but I totally agree with you, man. Like it's, it's sympathy is, is it can be, I think it's terrible, actually, now that you say that, because um, it, it can also, because I, I, I feel the same way. The, the way I look at it is somebody tells me, you know what, my, 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 my mom passed away. I'm like, man, that's tough. You know, I, I empathize. I'm like, man, if I'm in that situation, when I'm in that situation, if it does happen, um, like it, it'll be very tough and I can really, I feel for you. Thing is, I'm like, but it, that, that situation is not special to you. Like we all live life that, that will happen to me also. So I'm not, I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's no feel, feeling of like pity for you because it's like, this is, this is, it's a revolving door. It's actually going to happen to me also. And when it, when it happens to me, I don't be able to feel sorry for me because, because it's just, it's, that's what we signed up for by being alive. Right. So, so to me, it's like sympathy can also be a thing where I feel like it, it creates this dynamic where people look down on you, right? Because somebody feels sympathy for you, which is, I mean, it's, it seems like it's good, but then I, I genuinely believe in my life and I've seen people feel sympathy for others. They, there's this thing where I call it the human disease. Humans, I believe, are wired to make themselves 
feel special. You know, like it's like that's that's where I believe sexism, racism, any sort of hatred for other people comes from. And it's like people think it's like, well, it's just America is just like a white black thing. I'm like, no, it's not that, dude. Like if you go to India, you will find that the same thing happens there within the, the same population. If you go to Africa, it doesn't matter where you go. There's this thing where people look people look for anything to make themselves feel better. It's not just about race, right? It's, it could be, well, I'm I'm 6'5". People who are 6'2", okay, I feel better about myself. It validates my, my existence. My life matters, right? And I think we need to do that. Like, typically, it's, it's something that we're born, like, that we learn pretty quickly to make ourselves feel special. Because if you don't do that, then you realize that your life is at a base level, is not worth more than anybody else's who, who's, who's died from cancer, who died in a war in a remote country in the world. And it's a pretty, like, you know, like they, they had real lives and they passed away in horrendous ways. And it's just, there's, there's no real reason for it, right? Like if you just think about it from a logical standpoint, if you don't bring in any, any religious tactics or any religious um, concepts, you just look at it from a, just, you know, just a, a logical standpoint. So the human disease is, we try to say, hey, my life is worth more than somebody else's because I'm more handsome, because I'm black, because I have more money, because I have this and that. And that's all garbage. That's not true. But it's something that I believe that we all do. And it's something that you have to consciously work towards and against, I guess, work against to like really just separate yourself from that concept. Otherwise, that's how... That's why I think there's most most problems in the world are caused by that. It's like Democrats think that they're better than than Republicans because this, and Republicans think that they're better than Democrats. And I think it's just I just I just think it's it's unfortunate. I think if we really get to the root of things, we're all just human beings trying to live before we die and have the best lives we possibly can have. And some of us have different beliefs, and it's it's okay. You should be able to accept them so long as they're not immoral, so long as they're a moral person. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how we got there, but like, I guess it was the sympathy concepts. So I feel like sympathy is an extension of this of this problem. I don't think you need to pity someone because they're in a situation because that situation is not is not special to them. It's just special to being a human being. You could be in a situation yourself if you're you look down at a homeless person like, oh man, look at this poor homeless person. Let me pity them. That could happen to you. You could lose your billions of dollars and you could become homeless one day, right? So it's not, if you realize, hey, this homeless person is is pretty much just someone else like me, just that ended up here, this could happen to me. Well, I don't look down on him or pity him by any means, but I can empathize with the situation because it sucks. But let me give him a dollar here. Maybe it'll help him out. Maybe it doesn't, but, you know, but at least that's how I look at it now. Yeah, it's this concept that I, I've called myself as um, fate's flip of the coin. You know, mm -hmm. what separates me from this person is just, I had this chance and they had this chance mm -hmm. and this is where we are, you know? And, and there's a lot of things that's attributed to, you know, your ability to learn more and to work hard and to talk to the right people. But there's sometimes when you look at a situation and you're like, it was just fate's flip of the coin mm -hmm. that I ended up here, you know? And, and it, like, it goes simply to like stuff like the kind of house that you grew up, you know? You know, you could be the same as this other family, but you grew up in a two parent, you grew up in a one parent. And, and so I think it's more than anything, it's understanding because yes. I think the last thing we really need is to put this thing like, oh, because this you're entitled. Like, no, like, come on. Like, why are you going to hate on someone else for just having something that was great? You know, like, and so, and so that's me sometimes like, it is something that like, for me, it's like, if you can have 
someone that gets a better chance at life. I'm all for them taking it. But but to your point about the human disease and that, I mean, like biologically, the way I would think about it is we're wired for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And like we have to ensure the continuation of our species and to ensure that the best kind of our species survives. And that's going to be based on relativism of what we understand. Why America is so portrayed as so much hatred and people against each other versus other countries is because America is one of the most diverse countries in the world, meaning people don't look the same. And so community is harder to foster in that. Meanwhile, you have countries that get along better, that collaborate better. They're more collective communities like Scandinavian countries. Most of them look alike. 80% of the population all look the same. And that's not a bad thing, but it's a reality check, right? When you have a melting pot, conflict is much more apparent. And so it's not to say that there isn't issues or things that are wrong or there aren't things that can be improved, but it's to understand where where we are. And there's a reason that we are where we are. And so moving forward, it's not this blind, like, oh, like, you know, these people were just that bad and that stuff like that. But it's kind of like, what is the best case? And and so to me, I think the best cure that I've realized for myself for stuff like sympathy is to compare it to nature. Because if my father dies or my mother dies or the person that I love dies, regardless of who dies, or how they die. Tomorrow morning, 7:30, the sun shines. Tomorrow morning, that grass is gonna gleam in the in the in the in the sun. Mm-hmm. The water's gonna flow, the fish mm-hmm. are gonna go downstream, lions are gonna go kill their like and, and so there's all these things that happen. They don't care about any of this that happened. And the the thing is, life must go on, you know? And, and so I also think. Like I think about my own funeral, like how would I want people to feel when I die? And it's like my death is the completion of the beautiful tapestry that I've lived my life. Right. And and, and so it's something to me that like if I believe that to be that, you know, and like in the day that I die, like I'm happy because everything that I've done, I believed I found meaning in it. It's a day where people celebrate and there's music and there's contempt because it was a life well lived. Why why be upset about that? And I, I even think about like the way that like there's a special process. I don't know what it's called, but you get uh, it's cremation. But then you get they plant a fruit tree above you mm. and then you grow fruit out of the out of your dead body. And so it's like an apple tree or something. And I'm like, that fact is so cool that even in your death, you give life. And, and so when I think about this concept of my own life and the nature in of itself, I'm kind of like life's too short to not feel everything. And then get life in order. Hmm. I have this, I, I've talked to, I talked to a therapist. One of my interviews I did when we did interview, the last interview run, I talked to a therapist and we talked about this concept of emotions as a river. Hmm. You know, he, he, he said this, he said, think of your emotions as a river. And he said, most people, I would advise that you want to go as close as you can to the river, but you don't want to jump into the river because mm-hmm. you're going to get washed away in the emotions. Mm-hmm. Right? You, want to be at the, you want to be at the bank of the river and you want to feel and see how the, the river flows and understand it. And I told him, and I was like, I absolutely agree for most people. But the way that I deal with my emotions hmm. is me. I want to go on the bridge and I want to jump into that river. And I just want to feel. No judgment, no thinking, no actions. I just want to float in the river and feel. I want to let the currents take me. And when I feel that I've understood a good part of what I need to understand, 
swim straight out of the river, right? Go parallel. And, and, and to me, it's that amplification of willingness to understand allows us to suffer less in reality. I, I said this in an interview the other day. I, I said that Seneca, a Stoic, said, we often suffer more in imagination than we do in reality. Right. And, and, and so I think when, like, and, and death is a good example. When someone that we care about dies, we have this beautiful opportunity to celebrate everything that they were and the fact that their memories, their habits, and their relationships are now going to make us better because they were a part of our lives, right? And, and so we're able to, we have the chance right now to take advantage of that. Not that it won't feel sad or there isn't grief, but it's a beautiful opportunity because that's the way I see it. And, and so to not, to let that go to waste and to let us, to let that prevent us from living the life where everything else must go on that to me is kind of like, that's not an alternative I would wish on anyone. So why am I going to act or pretend that that's the kind of thing I want to wish upon? But the the thing that this really ties and connects to the, the last things we've been talking about for the past about 10, 15 minutes of all this agreeableness and sympathy is most people aren't willing to say these things because what you and I just talked about isn't conventional. No. People aren't willing to admit these things. And this is the stuff that really can make a lot of change because it's different. Yeah. For a specific reason. And, and so I think that's the part that makes it so important. And it's like, you have to be able to talk about these things. You have to be open about it. But like, there's certain things that like, most people are unwilling to say. And it's like, if you really want to help people, you got to say the stuff that most people aren't willing to say. And you got to be willing to stand up to the people that say you're wrong about it. Because again, everything that we say isn't concrete, right? It's not set in stone, right? It's yeah. not absolute. But at yeah. the same time, it's based on an understanding of a lot of factors that if you just simply ignore it, it wouldn't be the wisest course of action. I totally agree. And then, like, the reason also, like, you want to talk about it is those are the deepest things that people struggle with. And there's the things that they keep inside. And those are the things that are stopping them from reaching the next, you know, level. Like, you have, like, being, being, uh, being alive as a person, you have to accept your, your death. You have to accept death as a part of life. You, death cannot be the end of life for everybody because it's not. What you're saying is death is just an occurrence that, that happens that feels crappy, but you still have to go on. Like, yeah, like I agree. Like if, if things, something happens to me, God forbid, I would not want my wife to wait to, she could go get married the next day, man. I want her to be happy. Like I don't, like at all. I have low feelings about that. I'm like, why? I'm not here. Why would I make it about me? You know what I mean? Like we've had, we had a great life together. Like my wife is an extremely smart woman. She would find an extremely great guy to be around my uh, my kids, and and that's that's a great to me. That's 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 great, right? I don't I don't see anything wrong with that. It's just it, it was what I signed up for from, from being alive. But it's it's some it's something to um to get to. It's not something that you you you, you can just wake up at like twelve years old and have you know you work towards understanding that. And what you mentioned about about river and and emotions. I want to kind of just talk about that a bit more. So I I also like to feel everything and then get out of the river. Um, so then let me ask you. So when you've had something, if you ever had something that's emotionally traumatic that's happened to you, when you think back on it, do you still go back and try to, and still feel everything? Or do you stand at the bank of the river and look at it? Right? Because I just want to understand the difference. Yeah, I think you kind of have this like 
analysis point before that moment, right? Before like, like let's say you're standing on the bridge and, and then mm-hmm. below you is the river of your emotions. And then there's the staircase to the bank. Mm-hmm. You got to understand how much have you actually felt it? Because mm-hmm. if you've never felt it and you have the capacity to withstand those currents, then that's my course of action. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. But if you've been in that river and you felt what you needed to feel, you don't need to keep going back in that river. Right. You're washing over things that you've already felt. Right. And so to me, reliving can be a slippery slope, but you got to live it at least once, especially when you're trying to understand. And I found that sometimes I say I don't need to, and then I uncover something else, and then I feel like I have to go back. But but I always kind of keep this this feeling in mind. It's almost in Greek mythology, there was the rivers of the underworld. And one of them was like the river Styx, mm-hmm. uh, S T. Uh, YX mm-hmm. and, and this was I, th- I don't I remember what the river was ba- every river had something to base on like the river of Lethos was um it like washed away all your memories I, I don't know if six was about pain or or stuff like this or what it what it was actually s- symbolic to yeah. but the the story of Achilles who was a, a famed um Greek hero who who helped us win who helped Greece win the Battle of Troy on the Trojan War they they talked about his mother dipping him into this river and, and she would hold him by his heel, right? The Achilles heel. And that was the only part where he was mortal. Everywhere else was invulnerable or was invincible. And he wasn't vulnerable to any attack, but they talked about how if someone went into this river and they didn't understood, understand who they were or what pulled them to be alive, what was the reason they were alive? Then they would dissolve and they, they would just be gone, reduced, reduced to atoms. Right. But if they had something, they had like this lifeline that would be tugging them, that would pull them back to reality, pull them back to who they were. And, and so I feel this, and I remember this concept when I'm going into the river. I always have that lifeline that I know is there. And that lifeline is I know who I am. I know what I've done, and I know what I aim to do, and I know the values that I stand for, and the fact that I believe that I do good for the world. And so when I go in these rivers and I go in these situations, I understand and remind myself of the current situation before that happens. So when I go and all I do is feel, I'm not mixing up past emotions or how I feel with who I am. Because that delineation between character and identity and how we feel without that can become a very dangerous threat to our own existence and to our own peace of mind. You know, it's it's this concept that, honestly, in my understanding of emotional intelligence, I think has been the single biggest contribution to my ability to understand my emotions and not let my emotions control me, is having that lifeline and then being willing to go into that river. Um, but but back to touch your point about when I know what you, I just I just have to know, is there anything that I would need to feel in order to deepen my understanding of what I need to learn or uncover. And if there isn't, then there's no reason to go back into that river right now. Mm-mm. And if there is, then sure. So so it's more about necessity after the first time where you really understand and process um, rather than just like going for the sake of going or thinking that it's going to give you answers when you just need to interpret what it's already given you. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree. It's just, I think... I think the, like, for me anyways, what's worked for me is 
like anything that's traumatic that's happened to me, not not to say that a lot has, but let's say whatever has happened, I want to be able to look at the, to think back on it and almost feel nothing, right? I want to be able to be like, man, that's like, I want to be able to look at it like I'm a character in the movie. That's that's when I know that I've reached the, the, the final stage of acceptance of the situation, right? So if something, if something happened to me five years ago, and when I think back on it, if I still feel pain, I know that I've not healed. If I still feel stronger by it, I know that I've not, I've not spent enough time with the feelings. I've not grown enough understanding. I've not accepted it. So, so then, yeah, I think there's still, there's still some work to do there. It's still time to spend in the river. But once I get to a point where I've accepted it for what it is, and I can look back at it and be like, man, you know, because I was bullied as a kid, for instance. And now I'm like, I'm able to look back at it like, man. I'm sorry, man. That's that's tough to happen to you, man. I'm just I'm like, well, too bad, you know. Like it's it's okay, you know. So as opposed to if you asked me about that ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago, I, I probably felt some emotional pain because I'm like, man, why did those kids do that? That wasn't necessary, right? But at this point now, like the the it's just it's just another story in my in my book, and it's just it's just it's whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm able to just look at it and just be. Yeah, so I can kind of understand what you're what you're saying and what the therapist is also saying. I'm not sure when at at, w- at which point he was saying that you want to just look at it, but to me, it's you want to just look at it once you've already processed, like you said. Yeah, I agree. Well, I also think that he speaks to more of it. I mean, he was a, he was a marriage therapist. Um, oh, nice. And, and he and he speaks to a lot of the people that he that like. I mean, you have a clientele you speak to, and, and so I think when you're telling most people advice, it's the same thing as like a personal trainer telling most people how to get fit you don't tell them to like screw your sleep schedule and start going to bed really early and wake up early and then work out and eat this because most people can't sustain it mm-hmm. so it's kind of like if you tell someone to go jump in the room with their own emotions most people aren't able to withstand that no but to me i speak to an audience that has a certain level of success and they have an amplification of normal characteristics so it's like I have to explain what's worked for me because I know that's going to be what's more effective for them. Mm. And, and so I think that's kind of too where like context becomes a little more key where it's like, again, like if I'm if I'm giving fitness advice to a guy that's already worked out for three years or he was in the military and he had discipline, he knew when I wake up, he made his bed every morning. There's a different kind of advice I can give to him because there's a different application of the advice. Yeah, because it's like if my aim is to help you to the best of your ability I have to understand you. And, and and so with that, if I understand you, I now know how to best serve you. You know, like if you're a guy that needs it, a, like in, in a delivery in a different kind of way, like if you just need to hear no fluff, no, let's talk about it. Like this is what needs to be done. Then you get that. And if it isn't the way, then I understand the way. And, and so I think it's, it's also like that adaptation of contextualizing, like what's going on in a situation also determines that people aren't right or wrong. The message is just intended for different kinds of people. Mm. That's a good point, man. Like your message is for me because I like to sit in that river. I like, I like that. I like feeling, you know, through COVID is the hardest is that's the, probably the only time I felt that badly in life, but I, I let myself deal with just everything I possibly could felt terrible for a few days, but then, at the end of it, I, I feel like I'm I'm a much much better person because of it, right? So I don't I would not recommend that to almost I'd be afraid to recommend that to anyone because at the lowest point on like the third day I felt like what what people would probably refer to as depression because I to be honest with you I don't really feel 
uh, depression. Um, like my life has been pretty, it's been pretty decent. So I don't, you know, I know it's, 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 I'm, I'm lucky, but I felt very terrible. I felt terrible. I could understand. I'm like, I could empathize with people uh, that kill themselves. I'm like, dude, this, if you feel this badly for five years, I could see why you would want to live. Like, this is terrible. But then outside of that, I always, like you said, my anchor was, I've been through so many experiences in, in, in the past that I know that there's a, there's a way out, right? When you know that, listen, this is temporary. And then these things, it's just like when you break your arm for the first day, if you let it sit and if you do the right things over time, it'll hurt less and less because I knew, okay, just because I'm feeling like this today, tomorrow, I'll feel a little bit better. It may not be noticeable, but it'll just get better and better. And eventually, because I've dealt with this, I will be completely healed, at least to the best that I think I was able to actually do it. It's just, um, I'm afraid to sit, to tell people to do that because I don't know if everybody's able to take that much pain or, or just just feeling badly and actually come out of it like they're supposed to, you know? But you need that anchor. Without that anchor, the, the, you know, you could dwell in there for, forever. Like, you know, so which is your life. You just go to the crappers, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, there's so many things in like the process that you kind of learn about when you're going through it. And, and I think that's kind of the ultimate thing too. Like when you're in the business of helping people and a lot of businesses help people in a sense, but like when you're in the business of like directly, like talking to people, the way that you speak to people and the way that I speak to people and like your aim is like that their life is at least a little bit better than it was before, or right. they learn the one thing that might help them break through the current stage. You kind of like swallow in like this understanding. It's like, what's everything that I know about? What's everything that I can like take my knowledge and then leverage it to the next level and like maybe have a basic understanding based on what I already know. And you kind of like start in there and then you just throw a spearhead at this person and you're like, who are you? Right. And it's not the words that they're saying, but the actions, the way they feel, the way their eyes light up when they talk about certain things that they do or the people in their lives. And you, and you form, you throw the spearhead at them. And you form the arrow and the shaft behind it. The spearhead is all about them because the arrow and the shaft carry everything that you can give them that's going to help them succeed. Mm. But there's only a certain kind of spearhead that penetrates their armor. So without the spearhead, doesn't matter how good the arrow flies or how good the arrow or the quality of the arrow, it mm. doesn't work. Yeah. But when you have the spearhead, Nothing attached to it. It's just going to sink into the armor. Nothing happens. Mm -hmm. When you have both, you have impact. So you can say you care about other people, but how much are you willing to go to actually help other people? And, that, and that's the reason when people talk about like, oh, I want to help everybody. You can't help everybody because there's no way that you can form an effective enough spearhead that's going to help everybody. Like yeah. you can say something generally like just treat people with respect or like be more grateful. That's something. But like true impact is like changing their lives and saying something that's unique, right? Like the concept of looking at your uh, emotions as a river is a unique concept that's not often talked about. The thing you talked about, the human disease, that's not often talked about. So it's like these kinds of things are more specific. And because they're more specific, they're more tailored to certain people's needs. Mm -hmm. And so it's like understand that all of this matters, right? Understand that your responsibility and my responsibility as people that create content that holds weight is what kind of impact do we want to have? 
And if we're willing to ask that question, you ask a question when you want to know the answer. And so, and so I think the bigger and the broader mandate here is kind of like the moral and ethical responsibility that one has when one says you have a certain mission in life to do. Hmm. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that's deep, bro. Because like, yeah, I gotta, I, I just, because there's like we mentioned this in the beginning, there's literally no one size fits all. Like, like if you say you treat everybody with respect, well, what about somebody who just murdered your family? Right. Like, you know, it's like, of course you treat everybody with respect, but there's, it's all, everything is all situational. Right. So, so, so yeah, so of course that that's the thing. It's, 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 it's really nothing is black and white. Everything is situational. If you want to get to something that is, that is, that is deep, you're you need to you need to dig deep to dig deep you need to find what people aren't talking about that has value right so it bring it comes back to my to to what i was talking about in the beginning right so i was i grew up around my dad my dad is a pretty smooth guy my my brothers my brother's pretty smooth grew up around those guys that you know they know how to be around women so i i had a pretty good idea how to talk to women from a young age i started out really young actually um, and then by the time I was a teenager, I, you know, I was talking to women. I did pretty well for myself. And then after that, just casually doing stuff with women. And I, when I was 20, I got into my first relationship. And it was it was completely, what I noticed was what I did previously with just being dating casually did not work to make the, the women I was dating happy, right? So I would be, I would be my, my whole attitude is always to be chill, nonchalant not say much and like it actually attracts women during the dating phase because it's just it's something that balances them out typically but then when you get into a relationship you do the same things and what you find is well the woman that was previously attracted to that in the previous phase is no longer attracted to that she has different needs so then after three four years of dating unsuccessfully just you know doing everything i was supposed to do i thought i was supposed to do providing always making the money um, making sure that I was good in, in bed, whatever you want to call that, um, making sure I was making some time for them, making sure I was working hard, making sure I had decent conversational skills. Those things, the women were still kind of felt empty at the end. And I just, I had to dig deep and figure out, okay, what am I missing? And in those conversations, they always told me, they always told me, Louis, you're, you're really rough. You're really tough. You're really, you're kind of mean. I've always, I took that, I took that very lightly. Kind of like you said, right? That that's that, that's a that's a trait that I guess I built over time. But um, it's, it's honesty. I, I always thought it was honesty, but you don't have to be unfiltered. You can be honest. You can still deliver a message without hurting other people's feelings. When I started to dive deep into, okay, these women are asking me to be a bit softer for them. What does that mean? Like it led me into emotional intelligence, and I realized that if you want to be very successful with women, yes, you need to be that cool calm, collected. I mean, you should be. If it's not your personality, that's okay too. But so long as you have that masculine frame where you, you're courageous, you're, you're assertive, you, you know, you lead in the right way, that is only half of the story. Because as soon as it becomes an actual relationship, the woman has needs that evolve. And if you don't have the emotional intelligence to be able to communicate and understand her at a deep level, because we have different needs, you will not be able to keep her happy. So, you know what I mean? Like, so, so, and I think that's probably the number one reason why women are always divorcing us because we don't understand, <clears throat> excuse me, how, what women say when they're talking to us 
we don't we're not typically like you said vulnerable or want because it's it's a weakness to us and we don't have the emotional intelligence to actually be able to absorb information and and speak without being just brutes like we typically like we want to be and like we're taught to be and like we are also naturally but i mean yeah that's what being a dynamic man is like being a man that's able to be masculine but also that's able to be has some of the best of the nice guy qualities by being kind good listener emotionally aware and um yeah man that's so yeah i mean i, I think nothing is black and white the more you, you dig deep into a concept the more you realize you, you just you need more tools you need more tools yeah yeah i think this is a, a great last point to kind of just like conclude what we've been talking about um getting to the space i mean this is obviously a space that you spend a lot of time in um both in like things that you've thought personally as well as what you talk about in your content um what like a couple of things that really stand out to me and, and things that I know I come from me too. What attracts a woman isn't what retains a woman. And, 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 and that's a fundamental understanding when, when you're someone like you that comes with the background of casual dating, what you did to attract them isn't what's going to be attractive to them when they're trying to get retained or when they try to stay, because it's great for a while, but then when they want a partner, you're not a partner. You're just someone that knows how to attract people. And, and the funny thing is I was on the opposite end of you. I dated because I wanted to learn what girls liked so they would feel special. So that when I ended a relationship with them, my next partner would get a better version of me and a person that knew how to be a better partner. But the one thing that I didn't understand, well, there's many things, but the one thing that more recently has, uh, has um, appeared, which I thought was very interesting is the things that I didn't necessarily like about them never mattered that much because I never, I always envisioned the end. I always knew it would end. There was always an ending pre-planned. And so it, no matter how much and how much fun we had or how much time we would spend together, the things that I would learn, I knew it had to end. And when I got to the point where I was in a, when I'm in a relationship where I don't see things ending, it's a lot different because those things now carry weight and before they didn't. And so that was the one thing that really kind of blindsided me. I'd have everything, like most other things I kind of understood and learned and evolved. It's not that I don't have to learn, but most things I did see coming. And the one thing that really, I will tell you blindsided me was just understanding that when you don't see an end and when you see things going a very long way, that ability to kind of like put aside things that you don't like or like discrepancies that you don't have the responsibility nor the authority to control now are in your life because there's a long-term play, you know? And so I think that was something that was very funny um, from just listening to you and for me to think about. But I think some other things too about it is it's interesting because when they talk about like, oh, like you're tough or you, you're not this, it's it's really the lack of vulnerability. You're not able to express how you feel. And, and I think that at some capacity too, like when you when you're in a relationship with a woman, a lot of things are also based on how they feel you feel about them, right? Like if they feel loved and appreciated and cared for, their responses are more based on that feeling, you know? And so a lot of times it's like, like, oh, you want to go to the movies? And it's like, you've been neglecting her all week. You've been working all this. It's like, no, I don't want to go to the movies. It's not about the movies, you know? Or if the flip side, it's like, yeah, let's go to the movies. Maybe she doesn't even want to go to the movies. But right now, like you've been taking care of her. You've been feeling like you've been making sure she feels great. You've been making sure she feels loved. So of course she's going to go into the movies and it's just, and it's the same thing, not even with the small things, but the big things too. You know, the picture changes depending on like how we take care of the, uh, of, of the people that are important in our lives. And, and so 
I think it's that dynamic where the language isn't conventional, right? It's its own language. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you talk about relationships in that context, but there's a lot of understanding to be had. And, and so I find it interesting that like, especially me and you come in to dating with two different backgrounds, yet they're similar in those instances, you know, like the, the fact that they were, they had an end created that kind of um, parallel that we both had, but, but it's those lessons that we learn. And, it, and it's again, like, I think the dynamic man is a, is a very good, very good way of putting it because it's understanding that things aren't always going to be set in stone. Things always change. They fluctuate, right? They're, they're dynamic. And, and, and so your ability to adapt creates your ability to sustain relationships, you know, because you kind of have to understand that, you know, there's a basic commitment at the very beginning of a relationship, but every relationship evolves in seasons, you know, like things change, people change and not personalities or not like ways of being or what gives them meaning but like there's certain times where certain things become more important to some people you know and and this isn't something to fear or something that you should think oh this is going to be what ends our relationship because i think one one thing more than like the commonly stated things like um adultery or like financial like lack of good finances i think one thing that is kind of like underlying in in these kinds of and divorce is really is the lack of communication, setting expectations, setting boundaries, but also willing to understand that you have to have faith in the thing working out. Otherwise, you're going to find the things that are wrong about it and you're going to destroy the relationship because of it. Yeah. We often find what we think is going to be there, right? When we like, if, if I tell you what's like every bad, what's everything that could go wrong right now and what you're trying to do versus what's everything that could go right. Your brain has different responses because it's going to search what you asked for. So you're asking me like, Oh, they don't care about me. Like how, how likely is this going to be end up in a divorce or how likely is she going to be to leave me? Or how likely is it going to be that he's not going to love me anymore? And it's not that that's the case, but now that you've asked the question, now your brain has to find the answer and it's going to seek every little pattern. It's the same thing with people before relationships. It's like, oh, every man is toxic. Every man doesn't know how to treat a woman. Right. Every man only is selfish. You're only going to find those men. That's and even it. if you, if they're not those men, you're going to find the traits within those men and then you're yeah. going to turn yeah. them into those men. You and men do the same thing with women. Yes. Do the same thing. That's, that's amazing. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, that is, I don't I don't think I've ever heard anybody say this. This is great, man. Yes, you're right. Please go on. You're absolutely correct. That's what I see in life. And, just... and then, and one thing I'll even talk about too, because there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't, I don't know the best way to say it, but I'm going to just say like the material that comes, especially for men from the red pill space, mm. it's based on a traumatic lens on biological understanding. Right. Because they get the part right where there is some truth in what they say, but the way they analyze it is what makes it this material stuff that's very harmful. That's and right. the reason I say this is like, let's talk about a topic. Let's say, let's say hypergamy, right? I, what's hypergamy, right? You always want to date up, right? You want to date the next status. Biologically, hypergamy was to protect the offspring, to give the offspring the best chance of survival and to have the best genome. But what hypergamy can be and what I believe in a healthy relationship is the gold standard of hypergamy is that if I'm someone that constantly looks to self-improve, that means that in a week from now, I will be better than I am today. In a month, I will be better than I was in a week. And that happens even on a day-to-day -day basis. I improve in the slightest ways or in 
bigger ways, I'm always improving. So my partner, they're hypergamous. Why? Because right now they're with me, but tomorrow they're looking forward to be from the better me from tomorrow and then the better me from a week. Your partner is the next level up because they're always improving. And that creates an accountability that pushes you to be better and that creates an accountability on their part to hold you to that standard, which should be mutual. That right there makes a stronger relationship. But people don't want to talk about that because that's hard to do. And it doesn't get the clicks or the likes. So is hypergamy a bad thing? No. Is hypergamy in that lens a bad thing? It's completely awful. And it's why a lot of those. So, so again, it's like it's this programming where you understand how much of this is based on someone's interpretation, how much of this is the media pushing a certain agenda, and how much of this is me taking it from the people that are influenced. Because if I am trying to better my relationship, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to some friends who are, who are married. I'm talking to a seven-year-old who's married. I'm studying people that didn't marry seven times. I'm not studying Kim Kardashian. I'm studying John D. Rockefeller, who was married to one woman, yet he had millions and millions of dollars. I'm studying the kind of people that I want to be like, because if it's worked in the past, I'm only going to look at the people that it's worked. And it's not that I won't look at the other side. It's that when I'm following something, I'm going to follow what I know has worked and that I study what doesn't work to understand why it didn't work for them, because I'm curious. But when I'm serious about implementing change, I got to look at the people that actually do it. And, and so these are the kinds of tweaks that allow me to operate in a better space, right? And so the statistics start to matter less because it's not that they're not accurate, but it's, it's that they don't apply, you know? No, and, 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 and so that's the, that's the thing about it, you know? No, they don't apply because you, you, you lie, you lie average. Those are averages and you're, you're a person that seeks to not be average. You're like, okay, well, I'm, I understand this is why they, this is, this is something that happens, marriages and so on and so forth. Well, I'm. What can I do for this not to happen? I don't think most people even ask themselves. And then you're a person that applies the knowledge that you get, which I don't know if. I mean, that's just. I mean, that's that's. I mean, that's as good as it gets. So yeah, man. I mean, you got it. <laughs> well, Louis, this has been a great conversation, man. I love speaking with you. I mean, I mean, you're a great guy. You you definitely have these viewpoints that I think are so healthy uh, for people to hear because it, it it can help really attribute to a holistic success of a person. Um, so the last two things I'll ask of you is, um, let people know where they can find you. Um, they can get the new book that you dropped as well as what's one main takeaway that you would have for this conversation. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I guess the takeaway that I will have from this conversation, I don't know if I said it, but I think, you know, it's cool to have nice suits and nice things. I think the most important thing, and people say this all the time is peace of mind. And it's good to be motivated by heartbreak. I mean, it's not good. Let me just say it. You could be motivated by heartbreak. Somebody breaks your heart and you're able to do all these great things. Motivated by fear because you don't want to ever be poor again. I really don't believe if you want to live a good life that those are great things. Uh, you want to be motivated by things that are positive, by, by positive emotions, okay? Not fear, not, not heartbreak. Because at the end of the day, what will happen is, you you're not fully you're not fully healed as a person or you're not you're not you're not reaching your full potential even though you're able to exert so much energy to get this thing that thing done i just feel like once you um you encounter the people that you actually need in your life you're going to mess it up because you haven't properly dealt with your your past 
emotional trauma is what I'm going to call it. So just really shoot for peace of mind over everything. I just saw a video of Dan Bilzerian today. He's like, well, like the things that make me the most happy is just hanging out with my, my good friends and surfing. It's not the, the Ferraris. They just made me happy for 24 hours. So just really focusing on, like Isaac said, just understanding yourself first and foremost, not, you know, being authentic for sure, not trying to be someone else, but really focusing on understanding yourself and becoming the best version of that, like Isaac teaches us. And then uh, as just a takeaway from my social media, please, you can find me on my name is L-O-U-I-S, that's my first name, Louis, I go by Louis, but L-O-U-I-S dot M-A-S-E. N-S-I, uh, that's Masensi, and that is my Instagram handle. You can find me on my website, lewismasensi.com. You can pre-register for my book. I'm still uh, just trying to guess when I'm going to drop it, probably before the end of the year, just depending on the kind of traction it gets. Uh, but yeah, those, that's where you can find those things. I have a dating course also coming up pretty soon, but just follow up with me on Instagram, and I'm sure YouTube pretty soon, Facebook, but you, you know, you, good, good things are coming. Sounds good, Lou. I appreciate the wisdom. I appreciate what you share. I mean, I, I love these conversations because, you know, there's certain things that you just learn by listening. But I think what becomes better about it is like the synergy of when you kind of have these minds that think alike, but are aiming at different things, but understand what it's like to aim at something. You build off each other. And I think when you can build off each other, you create understanding within yourself that you didn't know was there yet you already had the resources, right? It just mm -hmm. um, aligns things in a certain way. So that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I think for me, it's always kind of a major takeaway in any interview because I always see that happen every single time um, by the caliber of people like yourself that come on the show. Uh, so I want to thank your time. And to the audience, you know how we close it out. Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the Isaac Velez Gonzalez show, and we appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode. We are grateful for your support, and if you are serious about improving your life, check out our coaching at www.isaacvelezgonzalez.com. Until next time, that's all for today's episode.